Friends, at this time, we want to invite you to take your Bible in hand. And if you want to, you can turn in advance and open with me to the Christmas story as we find it in Luke chapter 2. But before that, I just want to remind us that during the Sundays of Advent, we're taking a brief journey uh, along the Christmas trail. Just as during the Easter season, we had a journey places of the Easter uh, and resurrection season from Easter to uh, the uh, the day of Pentecost. Well, Advent is a shorter season. We have the four Sundays of Advent, and so we are taking a brief trip. We began last week in Nazareth, a very biblical city. Jesus called the Nazarene. Remember, Nazareth uh, reminds us that Jesus is the branch because the Netzer, the branch, uh, lends its name to Jesus as the Nazarene. I forgot to remind you that that sounds very similar to that vow that people like uh, Samson took. They were Nazarites in the Old Testament. Uh, it had nothing to do. The names sound similar, but they're completely separate. Jesus, remembered was the prophesied uh, a sprout that rooted from the seemingly dead stump of the line of David in fulfillment of that covenant that God made with David that uh, his his uh, offspring would rule the throne of Israel forever and ever. So Jesus the Nazarene. But we were surprised to see that Nazareth, a biblical city, is completely absent from the Old Testament account. Uh, it was just a small nondescript village that was given importance because it becomes the hometown of Jesus, as well as being the places where the angels visited Mary and Joseph and announced that Jesus would be born into that family uh, as God. God would, uh, would uh, bring his uh, son uh, into the world. And uh, so we saw modern Nazareth had the Church of the Annunciation at the center of it. It's a large bustling city in northern Israel. And uh, it is in, it is in the, uh, the nation of Israel where today's town, as we go to Bethlehem, Technically, it's not in Israel. It's part of the uh, West Bank. So it's ruled by the Palestinian organization. Uh, Largely, no, Bethlehem in recent years has seen uh, a decline in population and prosperity and so forth as the, uh, as the group Hamas, basically a terrorist organization uh, among the Palestinian people, has exerted more and more control over Bethlehem. So the celebration at Christmas time in Bethlehem has been largely curtailed. Most of the Arab uh, Christians of Bethlehem have immigrated uh, to the West, and uh, Bethlehem uh, is on hard times today. But as we look into the uh, Christmas story of Bethlehem, uh, it warms our hearts because Bethlehem reminds us of the birth of Jesus. And if your house is like mine, you have a manger scene at home. We have one just nearby here, a creche here at the church, and it has the typical traditional figures. It has baby Jesus in the manger, Mary and Joseph, the shepherds who have been uh, uh, tipped off by the angels to come nearby. And as most of our manger scenes have, we have uh, the Magi, the wise men, we three kings of Orientar. So I've called my message today, Bethlehem, three kings. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you know the only thing wrong with that is that it's wrong that uh, the, the Magi weren't kings. They were, they were wise men. They were, they were students of uh, the stars and of the writings. They were possibly priests in the uh, 
the religion of Zoroastrianism uh, in Persia, basically fire worshipers. And yet even among these Gentile people, God revealed to them, uh, likely through the time of captivity, Jews being in that area, they learned that the Messiah was going to come and the signs of his appearing, and they responded to that. The second part is, of course, they didn't show up at the, at the manger scene. They didn't come until Jesus was probably, uh, probably over a year old. They journeyed. It took a long time since the star appeared for them to arrive there. Having set that aside for the moment, though, we still uh, love to have those kings show up in our manger scenes at home because it, it's a tradition. It reminds us of those gifts to Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But today I want to look, as we look at Bethlehem and some of the history of that incredible place of Jesus' birth, there are three kings that are intimately connected to Bethlehem, and we're going to be looking at them in just a moment. First, as we mentioned last week, that Nazareth, we don't see it in the Old Testament, but Bethlehem is very different. Bethlehem goes by a couple names, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Ephra, uh, but it is the place about seven miles uh, southwest of Jerusalem, and uh, we see Bethlehem founded after the return from Egypt by the clan that included in the nation of Judah the famous character, biblical character of Caleb. We know Caleb, he was one of the the spies into the land who along with Joshua saw that God's people with the Lord's help uh, could uh, move in and and take over the promised land, that rich land. Well, Caleb was blessed and his, his family was large and there were many clans that came from his family. And very likely that name Ephra and Ephrathah is one of the clans and branches of the family of Caleb. Sometimes it refers to the town of Bethlehem, sometimes the region and the people that Bethlehem lies in. We see that recorded for us that they took that area of the promised land in First Chronicles. Uh, we see in First Chronicles chapter 2, beginning in verse 50, these were the descendants of Caleb, the sons of Hur, the firstborn of Ephrathah, Shobal, the father of Kiriath-Jerim, Salma, the father of Bethlehem, and Haref, the father of Beth-Gader. These are leaders in Caleb's clan that had cities and towns that they founded in that area. And in that picture, you see one of the shepherd's fields just adjacent to modern-day Bethlehem. Uh, those are the green fields of Bethlehem. They're mostly rock, mostly stubble, and much of the year they're brown. But the shepherds, uh, during the winter season when the rains come, the grass grows and the shepherds keep the sheep moving uh, from area to area to, to feed, even to this day. Uh, Bethlehem is on the edge of cultivated land, and so the, the more wild land is more suitable to the raising of sheep and livestock, and so it's always been. In Genesis chapter 39, or 35 rather, we see one of the important Old Testament references to Bethlehem. And though at that time the area wouldn't have been called Ephrathah or Bethlehem because this is during the patriarchal time, in, uh, in Genesis chapter 35 we see that when Jacob, later known as Israel, was moving back into the promised land after his sojourn up in Haran, his beloved wife, Rachel died on the journey. And it says in Genesis chapter 35, verse 19, So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, 
That is Bethlehem. Over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day, that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. Now, when the Pentateuch is put together, this is an area where those editors who bring Moses' material together, they reflect with more modern names, uh, a later name of Bethlehem and Ephrathah, that important event. They place it in the minds of God's people. Rachel's death on the way was significant. She was not only the mother of some of the tribes of Israel, but she was uh, especially beloved of Jacob. And normally, as one of the patriarchs or their wives, she would have been buried in the same cave complex that we see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the patriarchs and their wives are buried, but not Rachel, because she didn't make it down to the area of Hebron, where the uh, great patriarchal tomb complex stands to this day. She died on the way, and she died in childbirth. And that was not, unfortunately, uncommon in those days without modern medicine, but it became very significant to the people of God. In fact, it said, even in the scriptural passage, that a pillar was placed over her tomb, and the people always remembered that. As you see in that picture there, that that picture is a, a drawing from a lithograph from the 1800s of Rachel's tomb because believe it or not the site of Rachel's tomb was venerated and visited by God's people the Jews especially women expecting children or desiring to uh, become pregnant they would always make a pilgrimage to Rachel's tomb and pray there for thousands of years that's been a venerated site and uh, that's what it looked like for much of the time. I visited that site in 1999, and the next picture shows what it looked like at that time. It was still small. It was uh, a small complex that included both an area of worship for Jews as well as for Muslims. There was a very small uh, mosque attached to it. And it had been like that for centuries. In fact, pretty close to that for the last couple thousand years, it looked like that. That's what it looked like. We stopped there on the way down just a couple miles further into Bethlehem. Now, as small as this site was, believe it or not, it's the third most holy site in Judaism. The most holy site, physical site today, is, of course, the Western Wall in Jerusalem adjacent to the Temple Mount. It was uh, dubbed the Wailing Wall by uh, uh, the British many years ago because of the, uh, the keening sound of some of the Jews that would pray there. But to the Jews themselves, they call it the Wall or the Western Wall. It's as close as they feel they can get observant Jews to the Holy of Holies uh, without setting foot <clears throat> on top of the Temple Mount because observant Jews, uh, uh, especially uh, very observant Jews, uh, will not go on top of the Temple Mount uh, lest they accidentally step foot uh, on the Holy of Holies and, and they would never want to do that. And so that's the most holy site. The second most holy site is nearby to the Western Wall and that is the Tomb of David. 
Now it's the traditional tomb of David. I don't think anyone has ever claimed that that's actually where David is buried. But it shows the the importance of David in Jewish thought and life to this day. Now it's take it's also in Jerusalem. It's on Mount Zion, right next to the Church of the Dormition, uh, the tall steeple church on Mount Zion. Interestingly enough, in that building, it's a very old building from Crusader times, and there's a large tomb of David. You can visit downstairs, second most holy site in Jerusalem. In fact, uh, before 1967, uh, when uh, for those years between 1948, the, uh, the War of Independence, and 1967, uh, the Six-Day War, uh, the Western Wall was unavailable for the Jews to visit. And so they would go to the tomb of David to pray. And uh, upstairs in that very same building is the traditional upper room that Christian pilgrims visit today. Of course, neither of those sites are likely connected to the real events, but that's where people go to remember those people and times. And Rachel's tomb is the third most important. But remember, a number of years ago, the nation of Israel built the uh, security barrier, that fence and wall between Palestinian West Bank and the nation of Israel. What to do with Rachel's tomb? Second most important site that's now behind the wall in Palestinian territory. How will these women make their pilgrimage safely to Rachel's tomb? Well, here's a picture. Now, wait, wait, go back to that, Lance. Go back to the previous picture. Look at the gate. That's the gate that we went through years ago. See those two big gate posts next to Rachel's tomb? Look at the next picture and look for those gate posts. Do you see them? The gate posts are now inside. They've built a new secure building over Rachel's tomb. And to get there, you look at the top uh, left of the screen, to get there, there is a, a single road with enormous tall secure walls built that you have to drive through to get to Rachel's tomb. And the reason for that is there have been numerous terrorist attacks on uh, worshipers on their way to Rachel's tomb believe it or not, including nerve gas attacks over the last number of years. And so it's one of the most uh, secure and difficult to reach places, but they still go there because uh, of Rachel and the importance of her uh, death and her memory to the people of Israel, especially to the mothers of Israel. That's Bethlehem today. But we want to look at those three kings of Bethlehem in the time remaining with us this morning. The first, of course, Bethlehem, known as the city of David, is King David. Unlike the Magi, he truly was a king. David, we remember him as the great king of Israel, and we also remember him as the shepherd boy. But I believe those two go together because David really was a shepherd king. Those lessons that God taught him as a shepherd, he took into his life as a king. Again, that's one of the fields near Bethlehem, a fields that were familiar to David as the youngest in his family. He was relegated to taking care of the flocks of the family out in the fields. We know that because after the disaster uh, of King Saul, the first king of, uh, of Israel, after Saul had... Uh, turned away from following God's way and had been making uh, uh, decisions in and of himself. God withdrew his blessing from Saul. And we know the story of Saul and David from the book of 1 Samuel because it uh, surrounds the activity of the prophet Samuel. In uh, 1 Samuel 16, verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Samuel, 
How long will you mourn for Saul? Because Saul had fallen from favor with God. And King Saul was precious to Samuel, the prophet. How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Now, this is interesting. This is where it begins to come into focus, as we saw last week. The, uh, the stump of Jesse, a, a, a branch will grow out of that, bringing new life. It will multiply, and it will bear fruit, and that will be the messianic king from the line of Jesse and David. Well, here we have God removing his blessing from Saul and now choosing a king for the people, a king after his own heart. So... Samuel obeys. He gets his anointing oil to anoint the new king and he journeys down the other side of Jerusalem because remember, Jerusalem is not the capital of that time. David later makes Jerusalem his capital. But he goes down to that area of the tribe of, uh, of Jesse and he goes to his house and he begins to uh, sacrifice and then look over his sons. And we pick up the story a little further down in verse uh, 7 or a little further even down, verse 10, it says, Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And each one, Samuel would pray, Lord, is this the one? And God God would say, no. And Samuel would see the next one. And he was tall and good looking. He said, he looks like Saul. That's a real king. And God says, don't look at outer appearance. I look at the heart. And so one after another, the sons come by Samuel And they all passed before him, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? (laughs) I can imagine that. Well, there still is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. He's the one. Can you imagine? The little skinny armed shepherd boy was chosen to be the king. Not the oldest or second or third or fourth or right down the line. The very youngest one. God said, don't look at the outward appearance Though in David's case, it says he was good-looking shepherd boy. He says, God looks at the heart. Oh, we know that David had been equipped to be king by God. And part of that was spending time as a shepherd. He was also the, the great leader of worship in Israel. And I'm sure there were many times where he was alone watching over the flocks that he composed songs as he lived in God's nature and he worshiped God himself. Well, Scripture tells us that that David, from his experience as a shepherd, he understood that God was the one acting in him and through him. As a shepherd, one of his primary duties was to watch over and protect his sheep. And David had harrowing experiences as the sheep were attacked by predators. And yet God delivered him through that. 
So when the time came, when he was taking supplies to his older brothers in the army of Israel, and they were in a standoff with the Philistines, and every day they were being mocked by the Philistine champion, the, the, the giant Goliath, David saw that, and his heart burned, and he says, how do you allow this, this, this uh, Gentile to defame the name of the living God? And everybody shuffled their feet and looked the other way. And so David volunteers to fight Goliath. And that faith in God that he showed at that moment was faith based on experience with God. In the next chapter over, 1 Samuel 17, David, in speaking to King Saul in verse 37, he says, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. David was a king of faith. He reigned by faith. He was made king by God. And he ruled by faith. Based on experience. With God. And of God. This faith in God. Allowed him to rule as a shepherd. To care for his people. Because he believed that God was a shepherd. It shouldn't surprise us that when we see the great leaders of Scripture, they're often chosen as shepherds. Think where Moses was, 80 years old, tending the flocks of his father-in-law. David, called in from the fields, tending the flocks of his father. They learned to defend and care and watch over those under their charge. Shepherds don't live for their own gratification. They live and even lay down their lives for those under them. Jesus, he's the ultimate good shepherd. He said, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Those things we love about King David, those are previews of characteristics we see ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. David is like a shadow in the Old Testament of who Jesus will be. Jesus, the messianic king born of the line of David. And oh, David's life and thought as a shepherd, of course, is summed up no better place than the shepherd's psalm, one of the many worship songs that he wrote and gave to us for the people of Israel and God's people over the years. The first four verses of those are especially meaningful as they speak of his experience as a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. David ruled as a shepherd by faith. How different the next king that comes onto the scene we see in in scripture in Bethlehem. Oh, Bethlehem is mentioned many times. One of David's descendants we know years later, Boaz, we read of his love story with Ruth. That takes place in and around Bethlehem. But then we come to the New Testament and we meet a towering figure in the history of Israel. And that is Herod. Herod, rather than faith, Herod, the power-mad king, faith had no part of his rule. He was not made king by God. He did not maintain his kingship through faith in God and care for those underneath him. 
He was as different from King David as you could find a king in history. And yet, he's important to the story of Bethlehem. Almost all in a negative way. Of course, the picture there is of the Magi come from the east looking for the king of the Jews who's been born, the prophesied Messiah. They've come to worship him and to give him gifts. And they met with old King Herod. The next picture is taken from Bethlehem. Look at the top left. You see in the distance, east of Bethlehem, that strange flat-topped mountain standing in the distance. Well, the top of that mountain is flat because that's not natural. Towering over Bethlehem is the fortress of King Herod. He named it after himself. It's called the Herodium. It was an enormous fortress and palace complex that King Herod built. It was one of many of his monumental constructions in Israel. In fact, uh, he is the greatest builder in the history of Israel. His buildings far surpassed even the glorious temple of King Solomon. And he did it again and again and again. The artificial harbor at Caesarea, the mountain fortress at Masada, the man-made mountain of Herodium, the incredible palace at Jericho. It goes on and on and on. Machairus, where John the Baptist was put to death. That's in modern-day Jordan, and we don't see much of it, but it's an incredible palace fortress complex as well. Well, King Herod, we see that picture as you zoom in, as we see there in the bottom right on the top of that mountain, you see uh, that it is a fortress. The next picture, as you saw, zooms out. The next picture, these are the modern-day excavations of the Herodium. All of that on the side of the hill has just been recently excavated in the last number of years, much of it under the leadership of the uh, legendary Israeli archaeologist Ehud Netzer. Uh, Professor Netzer died on that site as one of the railings gave away a number of years ago. And being up in his 80s, uh, the fall itself was fatal to him. But before then, he believed he had even uh, uncovered and discovered the long-lost tomb of King Herod himself. Well, that Herodium palace complex, as the sun would rise in the morning, the sun would rise east of Bethlehem and the shadow of the Herodium would literally fall across the town of David, Bethlehem. It was in the shadow of Herod. Well, the next picture shows a restoration. This is what the Herodium looked like when Jesus was born. It was in its magnificence and glory. Now, as glorious as this palace is, <clears throat> it has a, a swimming pool that's more than twice the size of an Olympic swimming pool. It has uh, Greco-Roman theaters. It, it was even visited by one of the Roman Caesars themselves. But it's built primarily not from faith, but from fear. Fear is the key word when it comes to King Herod. King Herod was not made king by God. He was anointed and made king by, of all people, the Roman Senate. Remember, the kingship of Israel, the line of David seemingly ended with Zedekiah right at the end uh, when the Babylonian captivity began. The Jews returned from captivity, but they were now just one of the many uh, vassal uh, states. They were one of the provinces under the great Persian Empire. Eventually, the Persian Empire was conquered by the Greeks, Alexander the Great, about 300 years before Jesus. And the Greeks then ruled, the Seleucids ruled the, the promised land. And they tried to exterminate Judaism and 
have them now become Greek people, speak Greek, worship the Greek gods. And they tried to uh, uh, just change it completely. They tried to Hellenize them. Well, eventually, uh, the Jewish people rebelled. And they overthrew their Greek overseers. And they reestablished a Jewish kingdom in the promised land. We call them uh, the Hasmoneans or the Maccabeans. And for about a century, they're actually Jewish kings back in Jerusalem. And then the Romans came to town. On their way to Egypt about 60 years before Jesus was born, the Roman general Pompey, uh, he conquered Jerusalem. And from that time on, they would put uh, puppet kings and governors to rule the people. One of those puppet kings was Herod the Great. He wasn't Jewish by birth. He was uh, Edomian, uh, ancient Edomites. Uh, Racially, he would have been an Arab. But the Edomians under the Maccabeans were forced to convert to Judaism. And so religiously, he was sort of Jewish. He had a veneer of Judaism, but the Jews never trusted him as a uh, fellow religionist. They knew that his heart of hearts, he wasn't really Jewish. He was Edomian. And so when the Romans in 37 BC put him, uh, because he was uh, a supporter of the Romans, put him in power, they gave him that title, Basileus. They made him the king. But he was always looking over his shoulder. He was one of the most paranoid tyrants in history. He ruled by fear. He would shed the blood of his people at the drop of a hat. In fact, being in his family was no guarantee of safety. In the course of his lifetime, he had 10 different wives. Now remember, as ostensibly a Jewish king, he only had one wife at a time. He went through 10 wives. More than one he had put to death. He married a Jewish princess named Miriam uh, to lend legitimacy to his reign. And it seemed that she was the love of his life. But her mother... Her mother was also a Jewish princess. And when Herod made his brother-in-law, Aristobulus, the high priest, uh, the people turned to him and looked to him for leadership. In fact, uh, Cleopatra, uh, another great Roman puppet ruler, invited Herod's mother-in-law and his brother-in-law, Aristobulus, to come to Alexandria for a little visit. Well, that made Herod suspicious. And so he invited his brother-in-law to his palace in Jericho and said, well, it's a hot day, have a dip in the pool. And at the same time, told two of his ruffians, when he's in the pool, make sure he doesn't come out. So they played the worst game of Marco Polo in in history, and they drowned Herod's brother-in-law in the swimming pool. Well, the Romans were furious that Herod had done this. They knew they had murdered his brother-in-law. And so he was invited to Alexandria to answer to Mark Anthony. Before he left, he put his precious wife Miriam in the hands of his uncle Joseph. And he says, if they put me to death, poison her. And so he goes off to Alexandria, answers for his crime, talks his way out of it. But when he gets home, his wife is furious with him. And he realizes his uncle has spilled the beans. So what's he do? Well, first he kills his uncle. And then on trumped up charges of adultery, he has his wife strangled an execution by slow strangulation in the course of his reign he executed both of his sons by Miriam, aristobulus and alexander 
he his own sons Antipater and others well days before his death he had his oldest son Antipater executed as well we know that he gathered the uh, the the leaders of Jeru- of Judea uh, to his palace in Jericho when he was in his last illness so that when he died they would be put to death so there'd be lots of crying uh, at his death that's the kind of man he was he lived in paranoia He never built a palace that wasn't also a fortress. He was afraid of the Romans. He was afraid of Cleopatra. He was afraid of his own people. And the worst bullies always have the heart of a coward. And that is Herod the Great. Now, some scholars say, well, the massacre of the innocents at Bethlehem, that's not written down in history, so that must be made up. That must be early Christian propaganda. But friends, Herod committed so many massacres on such a large scale that the death of a few male children in a small village would never have left a ripple. Oh, he executed most of the rabbis in Jerusalem and their students at one point because they had pulled down a Roman eagle near the temple. That's the type of man he was. And so we come to the Christmas story in Matthew, the arrival of the Magi with this king this power mad paranoid king on the throne matthew chapter 2 takes on new meaning to us the first six verses of that chapter say after jesus was born in bethlehem in judea during the time of king herod magi came from the east to jerusalem and asked where is the one who's been born king of the jews we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, as you can imagine, and all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. So Herod, we know the story. He tells the Magi, go find the child. And when you find him, let me know. I have a special present for him, something special. And we know what that was. So of course, God intervenes and he warns the Magi of what Herod's up to. And they go home a different way. They don't report back to him. And he warns Joseph and Mary to get out of Dodge. And they make their way from Bethlehem and they light out for Egypt. Verse 16, further down in Matthew chapter 2, it says, When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi, the massacre of the innocents. A horrible crime, minor in the list of crimes of King Herod, but it touches our hearts to this day. And it's in the vicinity of Rachel's tomb, the loss of a mother, and now the loss of the children Bethlehem has seen more than its share of tears shed throughout the years. Where David was a king who ruled by faith, Herod was a man who lived his life in and through and from fear. And what Proverbs 29, the wisdom of God in Proverbs 29 verse 25 says, the fear of man will prove to be a snare. 
But whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. And friends, how many things we do today, bad decisions we make, times we stumble and it's based in fear. Even God's people today, especially in this time of pandemic, we are tempted to live our lives from fear rather than faith. Because that's all we see in the news. It's all fear. It's fear for your health. And that presumes that physical health is all you have of true value. Where we know it's a gift from God, but it's one of those things we understand we're held in God's hands and there's life far beyond the physical that we experience. We cannot follow in the footsteps of that second king and live our lives from fear. Well, of course, the final king is the baby in the manger, Jesus. Not a king from faith or fear, but the king of kings himself, Jesus. As we see David, he ruled by faith, and Herod rules by fear, but Jesus, Jesus is the ruler by right. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He holds us in his hands. As the apostle Paul said to the to the, uh, the scholars in Athens, he says, in him we live and move and have our being. He is our rightful king. Just as King Herod had, had asked the wise men of his own uh, leaders, the chief priests and the scribes, where the, where the Christ would be born. We're reminded of that verse that they quoted. It's found in Micah chapter 5, and it speaks of little Bethlehem. In the, in the clan of Ephrathah. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will rule over Israel whose origins are from old, from ancient times. This is the king of kings, Jesus, the ancient of days. He did not begin in Bethlehem or when Mary conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in Nazareth. He is the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was made flesh at Christmas time. The second person of the Trinity, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. This is the, the Prince of Glory, the King of Kings, has come into His creation as prophesied through Micah. And that brings us to the birth of the king in Bethlehem. The familiar Christmas story found in Luke chapter 2 said in the time of the Romans, it says in verse 1, in those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. The king comes home. The descendant of David, from the line of David, he comes home. And we are reminded 
As Micah and others said, Jesus is the branch, the netzer. He is the one who comes from the seemingly dead line of David, the stump that had been cut off for so many years. And now the king is born, ruling by right. Jesus spoke with an authority that nobody else spoke with. And he always touched people's lives with love and grace, caring for them. Who's that remind us of? It reminds us of David because Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. All of the shepherds in the Old Testament point to Jesus, the good shepherd. The Lord is our shepherd. Well, of course, in Nazareth, I mean, uh, Bethlehem rather today, oh, during the pandemic and during the unrest, political unrest, Nativity Square in Bethlehem doesn't see as many as it used to. This is the picture of of Nativity Square outside the Church of the Nativity. It's a famous area. In fact, it's the oldest Christian church in the Holy Land. Now, what you see, the tall buildings on the right side of the screen with the tall steeples, uh, these are a little bit later. This complex, believe it or not, has stood for 1,700 years. It was built by the Roman Emperor Constantine, the first of the Christian emperors, when his mother, uh, Queen Mother Helena, went on her Holy Land tour and uh, established the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And in Bethlehem, over a limestone cave, which was used as a stable, they built the Church of the Nativity. When the Muslim invaders came in the 630s and 637, they destroyed all the churches except this one. Because the mosaic showed the Magi coming. And the, uh, the invaders from the east looked at that. And they saw people riding camels who were dressed like them. And so they believed this church was built in their honor. And they let it stand. But what they had done, they had ridden their horses right into the church and desecrated it. And because of that, as you look way down in the end of that plaza, right at the far end, there's this tiny little door about this tall. The next picture has a close-up of the door. In fact, it was lowered. You see the older arch above it. It was lowered and made small so nobody could ride a horse in. In fact, to enter, you need to humble yourself and bow down to enter that ancient church to this day. Underneath it is the grotto, of course, the cave that you can go down into and see where the birth of Jesus is remembered. Whether that's the actual site, we don't know. It's the traditional site and has been for so many centuries. And there is the silver 14-point star. You reach through that and you can touch the, the ground of the cave floor below. But this is a reminder to us that the king of kings wasn't born in a palace like we see the incredible palaces of King Herod. He was born in the shadow of one of those great fortresses. And he was born in a stable because there was not even room for him in an inn. And yet he came, humble, to people uprooted as political refugees with no home, homeless people in a town that no longer seemed to belong to them. God's son was born, the king of kings. As Isaiah reminds us, the prophet in Isaiah chapter 9, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end, and he will reign on David's throne. And over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice 
and righteousness. The good shepherd, the king of kings, reigns not with fear, heavy hand of a tyrant, with justice and righteousness and selfless love. Till Jesus returns, friends, the reign of Jesus, the King of kings, the kingdom of God is in the hearts of people today who know him. And during this Christmas season, I ask you once again, do you know the king? Does he reign in your heart today? The good shepherd who loves you and laid down his life for you. This is the time of grace. There will be a time where this king will return on a white horse, king of kings and lord of lords, and usher in his eternal kingdom. And at that time, the day of grace will end. But till then, you have an opportunity to open your heart to Jesus, to accept what he did on the cross for you, for the forgiveness of your sins, to be adopted into his very family and become a child of God. We finish today with one of the glorious verses from the book of Revelation, looking at Jesus and his coming eternal kingdom on the throne of David. In fact, it's found in chapter 11. It's the seventh and final trumpets that the angels blow. It says, The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ. And He will reign forever and ever. He will reign forever and ever. Friends, that's what we pray for every time you repeat the words of the Lord's Prayer. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You're praying for this moment when the kingdom of Jesus comes once and for all. Till then, friends, we celebrate the birth of our King. We look forward to His sure and certain coming. And we share the cause of hope we have today. Even in dark days of separation and loneliness, we can know the King of Kings and have Him rule in our hearts today. Well, this place of Nazareth, uh, this our Nazareth we began last week, Bethlehem today, we'll continue our journey through the places of Christmas next week. But before then, we're going to close with prayer. And then the as I pray, I'll invite the worship team to join me on the platform to close our time together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence today. Oh Lord, so many of us are home today. We wish we could be in person at church but Lord, the government mandates are keeping us apart. Lord, we pray that your spirit would unite us and make us one today, that we would feel your presence in a special way. Lord, as in the Christmas season, we remember the town of Bethlehem, the city of David, the shepherd king. Lord, it was ruled over by a tyrant who ruled from fear. But during the dark days of his reign, you gave hope and light as a baby was born. And that baby was our King Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, may Jesus rule and reign in our hearts today. May we share the hope we have with others during this Christmas season. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.